Well, when was the last time that you had a nightmare? Maybe it was last night, and you woke up, and you thought, oh, what a relief. It was just a dream. And maybe you looked under the bed to make sure the monster was gone, or you looked in on the children to make sure they were okay. But it was just a dream. Well, what happens if the nightmares come when we're awake? The Old Testament people of God went further, faster, deeper into sin and rebellion until God said enough. And in judgment, the Babylonians came and they laid the kingdom to waste. It was the ultimate nightmare. Jerusalem and the temple destroyed, the last crowned king taken into exile, and the people uh, starved or slaughtered, and those that survived were carried off to Babylon. They were exiles in a foreign land. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. But in the darkness, the light shines. A prophecy, a prophecy written 140 years earlier by Isaiah, and a prophecy that's now coming to pass, that the Lord himself will bring his people home. And that prophecy is, <coughs> excuse me, is Isaiah chapter 40 to 55. And yet, as you read those chapters, the language in those chapters, the, the framing, the promise of salvation is just too big to be fulfilled by those exiles returning from Babylon. Just take our reading, chapter 41 and verses 8 and 9. But you, Israel, my, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth, and called from its farthest corners. That's big language, isn't it? The ends of the earth, the farthest corners. Is that really to be fulfilled by a few tens of thousands returning from exile? And when Jesus was born, hundreds of years later, the widely held belief amongst the Jews was that the exile was not yet over. Yes, they'd returned to their own land, but it didn't feel like their own land. They were still oppressed by foreign rulers. This time it was the, the Romans. But of course it's with the coming of the last king, the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ the anointed one, the Messiah. It's then that this prophecy really does then begin to find its true fulfillment. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Who is Israel? Who are the children of Abraham? Well, as we turn to the New Testament, we find it's everyone who bows the knee to Israel's king, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is therefore every Jew and every Gentile who loves and serves and worships the Lord Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, these verses, their true fulfillment is found in us. We're the exiles. We're the ones who are living in Babylon. Obviously not the city that was then, but in scriptural terms, the city that has now filled the whole world. The world that usurps the Lord. 
that sins with a high hand. The whole world, as John says, is under the sway of the evil one. It's the world where pleasure, power, possessions are viewed as being more real, more substantial, more satisfying than God himself. It's a world where people worship as God what is not God. It's a looking-glass world. It's an alternative reality. That's the world into which we were born. But what happened? Well, if you're a Christian, you were born again. We were citizens of Babylon. We've become citizens of that other city in the Bible. Jerusalem above, as Paul calls it. Uh, Zion. All of which means we don't belong here. This world is not our home. In Peter's words, in 1 Peter, he calls us exiles, pilgrims, sojourners. We're passing through this world. We're on our way to that other city. We're going home to Zion. That's why Peter will say in 1 Peter, <clears throat> excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Concerning the words that the prophets wrote, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was, to be, that was to be yours searched and inquired diligently, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not, so that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. See what Peter's saying. When the prophets prophesied, they weren't actually speaking to their own generation. They weren't actually speaking to people in their own time frame. Even Isaiah, who spoke these words 140 years before the exiles returned from Babylon, he was actually speaking to a much later generation. What they predicted wasn't about the return from Babylon in 536 BC. They were speaking to us. Isaiah's words are addressed to us. And yes, they're in the language of the Old Testament, the Old Testament language of blessing, but they were talking to us. Here in Isaiah is God's word to you, to me, today. We're the exiles. We're those who are returning from Babylon. We're the ones who are going home to Zion. So come with me to the reading which we had. Isaiah 41 and verses 8 to 20. Now, before we really get into it, I hope a couple of things stood out to you as you read it, or as we read it. Certain phrases are repeated. The first phrase that's, phrase that's repeated is the phrase, fear not. So verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Verse 13, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Verse 14, fear not, you worm Jacob. God says fear not. Why? Because life in Babylon is intimidating. And the thought of the journey home 
through all the dangers and trials, that journey can feel overwhelming. So God says, it's a reassuring word, fear not. Brothers and sisters, doesn't life in Babylon leave you dismayed at times? Don't you find yourself sighing? And because we live in Babylon by the values of Zion, it's clear we don't belong here. We stick out. Christians are often distrusted, slandered. In many parts of the world, they're persecuted. And while everyone else is seeking to make a success of life in Babylon, we're the people who put down no permanent roots. Our inheritance isn't here. That's why Peter uh, will say, 1 Peter, um, he talks about, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says, to an inheritance. But it's not inheritance in this world. Inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. All these things are saying that we don't belong here. We're passing through. We're not putting down our roots. We're sojourners. We're strangers. We're exiles. We're journeying somewhere. We're going home to Zion. But as we journey, it's a journey that's fraught with dangers and temptations and trials. And so as you look at 2024, we wonder what lies ahead of us. The first thing the Lord says to us is, fear not. I wonder this morning, are you living with that dull ache that we call worry? You know, you wake up with it. Just a dull ache, it follows you through the day, you go to bed with it, you wake up in the night with it. That dull ache, that worry, fears for the future, fears for the family, maybe fears for your children. What sort of world are they growing up in? Fears for what's happening to this world, what's happening to our country, what's happening to our culture. Fears for what's going to happen next. And so the Lord says, Fear not. And if that phrase stands out, something else also stands out. It's that uh, two words, God says, I will. So verse 10, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. You get it in verses 18 and 19. It's said repeatedly, I will open rivers. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar. I will set in the desert the cypress. They're like two walls for this whole passage. Fear not, I will. Fear not, for I will help you. What the Lord will do for His people, what the Lord promises to do for you in 2024. So let's look at those verses. We'll we'll move quite swiftly through them. And we'll look at them under four headings. And the first is fear not. That's verses 8 to 10. So what fears do you have in 2024? Now we ought to say is before we 
get going in this. If, you, if Babylon is your home, then God doesn't say, fear not. If Babylon is your home, God says, you should be afraid because this world is your heaven. This is as good as it ever gets. And you have cast your future into the lap of gods, gods that will drive you mad and in the hour of your death will desert you. So you should be very afraid. But, verse 8, and this is the point, God's drawing a contrast, but by contrast, you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I've chosen you, I've not cast you off, fear not, for I am with you. See what the Lord is doing. In those verses 8 and 9, he's emphasizing the ties that bind him and his people together. He says it in lots of different ways. He says, you're my servant, my chosen, my children, my beloved. There's a sense in which God says, I've ransacked the earth to find you. And having now found you, the last thing I'm going to do is let you ever go. So I'm never going to let you down. Fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Is help a long time coming? No. He's here already. Fear not, for I am with you. Do we in all the news that we hear, the bad news, the things that trouble us, upsets, do we have to go and find a place of refuge? It's all getting too much. Oh, says God, no, hide in me. Verse 10, be not dismayed, for I am your God. Maybe your heart is sinking. Life is tough. I can't take any more. Verse 10, I will strengthen you. I will help you. And is the narrow way, does it feel so narrow that you feel you might stumble off the edge? You know, it's like walking on the pavement, isn't it? And, and it's just juggernaut after juggernaut that's going past, and you can hear the roar of the engine, and you hear the whoosh as the juggernaut goes past you. You think, well, what if I stumble and fall into the road? Verse 10, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I've got hold of your hand, says the Lord. You're not going to be stumbling into the road. Fears for 2024. When you cycle into the wind, hard work, isn't it? And you can feel it. You're pedaling hard and making slow progress. When you cycle with the wind behind you, you don't tend to feel it, do you? Unless it's a very, very strong wind. You, the wind's behind you, but you don't feel it. All you know is it was much easier getting from A to B than you thought. Now, God doesn't make things easy. But what he does promise is he promises that he'll give you strength that's more than equal to what you have to face. And in that sense, it's a bit like cycling with the wind behind you. You won't necessarily be conscious that God is helping me in this situation, but somehow I got from A to B, and it was much easier than I was expecting. So in dangers, 
Well, normally I panic, but actually I felt quite calm. And when sorrows came, I did find a peace. And he comforted me. And in sickness, he won't leave my side. And in weakness, you look at the week ahead of you and you think, I just cannot face this. I really can't face it. And yet, when you get to the other end of the week, you wonder how you managed to, how did I manage to get through the week? <laughs> what was it? It was the Lord. It was the Lord saying, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Point number two, enemies. That's verses 11 to 13. Who will be against you in 2024? When Rome burned in AD 64, who got the blame? It was the Christians. Uh, Nero, the emperor, pointed his finger uh, at the Christians to deflect suspicion from himself. And Christians were framed, scapegoated, and it unleashed a terrible persecution. What was it that gave that persecution traction? Why was it Nero could point to the Christians and say, they're the ones who started the fire, they're to blame, and the persecution just followed on straight away? Why didn't people resist and say, oh, hang on a minute, you've got that wrong? It was because already Christians were resented. Tacitus, the Roman historian, he says, Christians were accused of hatred of the human race. That's strong words, isn't it? The people who go proclaiming Christ and embracing others and whose, uh, whose very heartbeat is love, they're accused of hatred of the human race. Why? Because although they were living in Babylon, they refused to live like Babylonians. They wouldn't join in. They wouldn't go to the gladiatorial games. They wouldn't go to the great feasts in all these pagan temples, which ended up with idolatry and immorality. And especially, they wouldn't join in with the worship of the emperor. The worship of the emperor, the glue that held the empire together. The empire which people believed has brought great blessing to the human race. So if you won't be part of the glue that holds the empire together, it must be that you're anti the human race. So Christians were seen as against us. And so slander, mistrust, suspicions, hatred. So when Nero pointed the finger, it was but a little step to persecute the godly. Jesus said, I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. And in the UK, we've had the blessing of the gospel, haven't we? And that's brought generations of ease. But it wasn't always so. In this country, people were burnt at the stake for being loving, loyal, faithful Christians. We sang that uh, uh, poem of, of Bunyan's, John Bunyan, in Bedford Jail for 12 years, then released, then put back in the jail. Why? What was his crime? He simply preached the gospel. 
The, the liberties we enjoy in this country are relatively new. They've only been a few generations. And we've kind of thought, well, that's the way it should be. But 2024, the tide is turning. Maybe normal service will be resumed. And God's people will be, find themselves being more and more put to one side and regarded with suspicion and distrust and maybe more. We have enemies, verses 11 and 12. People don't like us. Some take up a cause against us, verse 11. Uh, all who are incensed against you. Some might dog our steps at every turn, verse 11. They strive against you. Some do all they can to oppose the people of God. Verse 12, those who contend with you. And there'll be some who will be openly at war with God's people. Verse 12, uh, those who war against you. And of course, behind it all, the war is not really against flesh and blood. Behind it all is the arch enemy, Satan himself, who's raging at the church. So will those who stand against God's people, will they ultimately succeed? Well, 2024, you may, have dry, you may have a dry mouth, you may have a pounding heart, you may have that sinking feeling, maybe more. But as the opposition mounts, so says God does its ineffectiveness. Because to war against God's people is to war against God himself. And the war is unequal. So there can only be one outcome. You meddle with God's people, you bring destruction on yourself. Verse 11, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. And those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. The early church, the persecutions that went on for two, three hundred years, they were crucified. They were torn to pieces by wild beasts. Uh, they were set on fire and used as street lamps. But where are the martyrs now? Well, Revelation 14, we're told they're standing on Mount Zion with the Lord, safely home. And what are those who persecuted them? What are the Babylonians who oppose them? Well, they're in hell. So, Christian friend, powerful enemies. What does the Lord say? And this is our text on the, on the cards. For I, verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is unbreakably committed to you. So no one is going to break his grip, his handhold on you. And he's not shouting from the touchline. He's not, as it were, as it were, you know, at the end of the journey and you can just hear his voice being carried by the wind to you and I can vaguely hear what he's saying. He says, I'm holding your hand. Now, when I was a 
when I was little, I loved holding my dad's hand. Or rather, he was holding my hand. Because him holding my hand said everything. I felt so safe. I felt so loved. He's my father. I'm his son. And sometimes he'd squeeze my hand, and I'd look up at him, and he'd smile and wink at me. I thought, he's my dad. Who had hardwired that into me to respond like that with my father? Who'd hardwired us? Who hardwires us like that? It's the Lord. Why does he hardwire us like that? So that I understand the ultimate father-son relationship. The father who holds my hand. That's the picture. It's a picture of we're, we're, all we ever are in this world is toddlers. It's a picture of our heavenly father holding my hand. And because he holds my hand, I'm safe and I'm loved. And whatever the bullies might do, I'm never ever alone. And sometimes we may feel it in the preaching, in the prayer meeting. There's that sense of he's so close and it may be just that he squeezed my hand and I look up at him and he smiles at me and he's saying, it's all right. It's all right. I've got you. You're safe. You're loved. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, me, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. So point number three. Uh, impossible obstacles, verses 14 to 16. So what obstacles do you face in 2024? Verse 14, fear not, you worm Jacob. That's me, I'm, I'm a worm. All I am, just a worm. And yet, verse 15, I face mountains. <laughs> so can, can worms move mountains? I watched a film of a, of a robin chick uh, wrestling with a worm, and I, I really admire the worm. There was something heroic about this worm. It was, he was valiantly resisting the, the chick, but in, in the end, the chick got him. Uh, he put up a good fight, um, but the chick got him in the end. Because what can worms do? They're just worms, aren't they? How can I make it home to Zion when I'm confronted by the world? The world that bullies, the world that seduces. And I think it's the seductions of the world are, are harder than the bullyings of the world. The world is pushing you. Well, at least you can, you can feel the resistance. But when the world opens its arms and says, come and hug me. Or what about confronted by the flesh? The seed of every known sin is in my heart. I am capable of anything. I don't know about you, I always find myself thinking, what am I thinking that for? Where did that come from? It came from within me. And we're confronted by the devil. A serpent, a roaring lion. Here are impossible obstacles. What are described here in verse 15 as mountains. But with the Lord, nothing is impossible. Verse 14, fear not, you worm Jacob. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So what are these mountains? Look at verse 15. <clears throat> Excuse me. I will make of you a threshing sledge, new and sharp and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, 
You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. A threshing sledge, something many of us have handled one of those, it's made of wood, it's got teeth of iron or of stone, and you drag it across the grain, you thresh the grain, and it separates the, the grain from the chaff. And you've got a farmer who knows what he's doing, and you've got an efficient sledge, no problem at all. See the picture, behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. So we're being wielded by the Lord. And mountain or no mountain is saying, whatever the impossible obstacle, it will yield to us. You won't have to go round the mountain. The picture is going is of going straight through the mountain. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. If a threshing sledge doesn't do it for you, think of an earth mover. Or think of one of those great tunneling machines. You know, HS2 or the London Underground, these great tunneling machines that just go through the earth. That's what he says. And when the Lord brings you through the impossible obstacles, the mountains of 2024, well, you won't be boasting in yourself. You won't say, ah, oh, the worm has done it. You'll be boasting in the Lord. It's His doing. And He'll get all the praise. Verse 16, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. If we could do it ourselves, we wouldn't need the Lord, would we? That's why there are impossible obstacles. How we learn to trust and obey. And that way he gets all the glory. But look at verse 14 again. Just in case when the time comes and you face a mountain and you might doubt whether the Lord is going to be with you. Look at verse 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now, a redeemer here uh, refers to a family member. You've got ties of, of flesh and blood. And that family member, when the going got tough, they would come to your rescue. So if you're in debt, or you've been dispossessed, or you've been enslaved, your redeemer would come, and they'd sort it all out at their own expense. Well, think how costly our redemption has been. A cross, a ransom, the shedding of blood, his own precious blood. He did all of that. He did all that love could do to rescue us from the impossible obstacle, from sin and death and hell. Redemption through his blood. Has he done all of that? only to abandon you in 2024? Has he done all of that so that when the going gets tough, he's nowhere to be found? We might say this, he's already done the hard bit. He's already redeemed us from the impossible obstacle. 
and there's a sense in which now bringing us home, well, that's the easy bit. And we're not just saying that. It's the way Paul puts it. For if, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Nothing can stand in the way of God's people. They're walking on the way of holiness. There are mountains. They don't have to go around them. There are impossible obstacles. God will drive a straight road through it. The straight road to Zion, which is why just a few verses, a few chapters before, we read this, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, the Lord, will answer them. In 2024, you will face something that is impossible. You will stand before a mountain, and you will need to come back to this and read what it says. You shall rejoice in the Lord your God. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. He will drive a straight road through it. Possible obstacles. And finally, point number four, the wilderness. That's verses 17 to 20. In 2024, are you afraid of running out of steam? You ever wonder, will I ever make it home? You know, life is hard, isn't it? But, but the Christian life, sometimes the Christian life just feels impossibly hard. Now, for those exiles traveling back from Babylon to Jerusalem. It wasn't a sort of quick journey. It was a journey of hundreds of miles, a journey across barren landscapes in the heat of the sun. At times, there was no shade, no water. Will they make it? Well, look what God says. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and the fountains in the, and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Rivers, fountains, pools, springs. And God says the, the thirsty won't have to go in search of water. The water will come to them. Verse 19, I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress and the plain, that's in the tree, the tr plane tree, and the pine together. It's interesting, here are trees that aren't usually found in the wilderness. Here are trees that aren't usually found together. But he's saying, as you journey home, as you journey in the heat of the burning sun, you won't have to go in search of shade. The shade will come to you. And you find the wilderness will become a garden. It's as though as they journey home to the promised land, the promised land comes out to meet them. And so that when they arrive safely home, it will be the Lord who has led them safely all the way. Verse 20, that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. What do we sing? All the way my Savior 
leads me. So, Francis, are you afraid of the journey in 2024? You wonder how you're going to keep going. Maybe 2023 was a hard year. How can I keep going? The heat, the thirst, the weariness. What does it say in verse 17? I, the Lord, will answer them. So they must have cried to God. Cried to God on their journey home. Cried to God in the wilderness. And God answered them. So in answer to our prayers, in answer to our cry, before we get to Zion, before we get home, we will have a foretaste. There's a sense in which Zion will come to meet us. So call. When you feel you're faint, when you feel faint and you're thirsty and you feel the heat of the sun and it's all getting too much, call to the Lord. Maybe it'll be family or your job situation or accommodation or health or despondency or depression. Maybe there'll be temptations that will just shake you to your very foundations. Maybe it's just more bad news, another headline, another thing to depress you. Maybe it's a money problem. Maybe it's relationships. And your tongue is parched. And the sun is beating down. Call to the Lord. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. And He will supply your every need in Christ Jesus. Imagine going for a long walk, and when you set out on the walk, you're, you're bright and breezy, and everything seems to be straightforward and easy, and you're quite a good pace, but now oh, you've been walking a long time. You kind of run out of energy, and you're thirsty, and you're weary, and everything aches, and the destination just seems a long way off. But you look up, and there's a Land Rover. And the Land Rover is is crossing the terrain, and it's coming this way. And the driver stops beside you, gets out, opens the back, and in the back, oh, there are cool drinks, and food, and a change of clothing. And you take that first drink, and as you drink it, oh, it's like liquid life. And you find your strength is renewed. That's the picture. And the Lord ends these verses with a flourish, doesn't he? Did you notice? Here we are, journeying. It might get difficult. What does he say? I will open the rivers on the bare heights. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar. I will set in the desert the cypress. God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Isn't that enough? It's as though God is saying, what more can I say? As you face that journey home and you feel overwhelmed by things and it all seems too much, what more can I say? I'll be there. So call to me. Which is why, verse 20, he says, that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So don't lose heart in 2024. And make use of those supply depots. You know, Sundays, the Lord's Day, 
the prayer meetings, Christian friendship and fellowship, just serving the Lord. And you find as you give, He gives to you, full measure, pressed down, overflowing, poured into your lap. Those supply depots, those land rovers that God keeps sending out, make sure you're there. Make sure you're there to uh, get the supplies you need to revive you. All those means of grace. In this Old Testament language, rivers, fountains, springs, pools. All there to help the pilgrims. Cedar, acacia, myrtle, olive. Before you get to Zion, you will find that Zion has come out to meet you. And you'll say that it's the Lord's doing. The hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Time to close. Brothers and sisters, we're exiles. We're living in Babylon. We're going home to Zion. So don't look for health, wealth, prosperity as a right. God may give those things, but they're not a right if you're an exile in Babylon. And don't expect a godly society and culture. So don't get too depressed with what you see around you. This is Babylon. This is what Babylon does. And don't expect a comfortable life here. We're exiles. But don't be miserable. And don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. Fear not. We're not missing out. When I was about six or seven, I was in hospital. And day after day, night after night, I didn't want to be there. And then one morning, my mum and my granny came in. And they stood by my bed. And I said to them, why don't you sit down? And they said, no. They said, we've come to take you home. They were the best words ever. We've come to take you home. I was looking at what? Well, no more hospital. I'm going home. We've come to take you home. Brothers and sisters, whatever the difficulties and challenges and heartaches of 2024, the Holy One of Israel, the Maker of heaven and earth, my heavenly Father, he says to you, don't be afraid. Just keep holding my hand. I've come to take you home. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we've tried to cover a lot of ground and to plumb some of the depths. But Lord, we ask for more that we might, by our very experience, know you holding our hand. 
speaking assurance that whatever 2024 holds for us, that we might not be afraid, the Father, we might be more than conquerors through Him who loved us, and that even the hard times, we might find them as stepping stones, hastening us on our journey home to Zion. We pray, our God, that Zion's highways would be very much in our hearts, that we would not depart from your way. And that, Lord, if this is the year when you indeed bring us home and Christ returns, or, Lord, we have to cross that river, then, Lord, we pray that you would be with us in a very special way. And that in all these things, by the lives that we lead, by the deaths that we die, that, our God, we might bring you honor and praise and glory. And we might be able to say, this is all your doing that you might get the praise, because this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.